0: Section fifty eight of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume Two The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Murphy, Richmond, Virginia. Chapter sixteen The Anglican Settlement and the Scottish Reformation. Part one by F. W. Maitland. When at the beginning of fifteen sixty there was a new Pope, pledged to convoke the council for a third time and to stem and repel the tide of heresy the latest disaster that met his eye was no mere relapse of england followed by a lapse of scotland for what was shaping itself in the northern seas already looked ominously like a protestant great britain two small catholic powers traditionally at war with each other the one a satellite of the hapsburg luminary the other a satellite of france seemed to be fusing themselves in one power that might be very great great perhaps for good but more probably for evil earnest embracing of religion wrote a scottish to an english statement will join us straightly together the religion that william maitland meant when he sent these words to sir william cecil was not the religion of pious the fourth and the general council suddenly all far-sighted eyes had turned to a backward country Eyes at Rome and eyes at Geneva were fixed on Scotland, and the further they could peer into the future, the more eager must have been their gaze. And still we look intently at that wonderful scene, the Scotland of Murray Stewart and John Knox, not merely because it is such a glorious tragedy, but also because it is such a modern history. The fate of the Protestant Reformation was being decided, and the creed of unborn millions in undiscovered lands was being determined this we see all too plainly perhaps if we read the books that year by year men still are writing of queen mary and her surroundings the patient analysis of those love letters in the casket may yet be perturbed by thoughts about religion nor is the religious the only interest a new nation a british nation was in the making we offer no excuse for having as yet said little of scotland called upon to play for some years a foremost part in the grand drama her entry upon the stage of modern history is late and sudden in such phrases there must indeed be some untruth for history is not drama the annals of scotland may be so written that the story will be entry of scotland into modern history we may see the explosion of fifteen fifty nine as the effect of causes that had long been at work we might chronicle the remote beginnings of heresy in the first glimmers of the new learning all those signs of the times that we have seen elsewhere in capital letters we might see here in minuscule also it would not escape us that though in the days of luther and calvin resistance to the english and their obstinately impolitic claim of certainty still seemed the vital thread of scottish national existence inherited enmity was being enfeebled partly by the multiplying perfidies of venal nobles and the increasing wealth of their paymasters and partly also by the accumulating proofs that in the new age a scotland which lived only to help france and hamper england would herself be a poor little power among the nations doomed not only to occasional floddens and pinkies but to continuous misery anarchy and obscurity all this deserves and finds full treatment at the hands of the historians of scotland they will also sufficiently warn us that the events of 1560 leave a great deal unchanged. Faith may be changed. Works are much what they were, especially the works of the magnates. The blood feud is no less a blood feud because one family calls itself Catholic and another calls itself Protestant. The band is no less a band because it is styled a covenant and makes free with holy names. A king shall be kidnapped and a king shall be murdered, as of old. It is the custom of the country what is new is that far-sighted men all europe over not only at london and at paris but at rome and at geneva should take interest in these barbarous deeds this customary turmoil continuity there had been in despair in that mournful procession of the five jameses there is no break fourteen o six to fifteen forty two the last of them is engaged in the old task and failing as his forebears failed It is picturesque, sometimes it is heroic, often it is pathetic, but it is never modern. Modern history sees it as a funeral procession burying a dead time, and we are silent while it passes. In a few sentences we make our way towards the momentous years. Scotland had been slow to emerge from the Middle Age. A country which of all others demanded strong and steady government had been plagued by a series of infant kings and contested regencies in the sixteenth century its barons still belonged to the twelfth despite a thin veneer of french manners its institutions were rudimentary its parliaments were feudal assemblies since the close of the war of independence there had been hardly anything that could properly be called constitutional growth sometimes there was a little imitation of england and sometimes a little imitation of france the king appearing as a more or less radical reformer but the king died young leaving an infant son, and his feudatories had no desire for reformation. The Scottish monarchy, if monarchy it may be called, was indeed strictly limited, but the limits were set much rather by the power of certain noble families, and their numerous retainers, than by an assembly of estates expressing the constant will of an organized community. The prelates, lords, and represented boroughs formed but one chamber attempts to induce the lesser tenants-in-chief to choose representatives who would resemble the english knights of the shire had been abortive and a bad habit prevailed of delegating the work of a parliament to a committee known as the lords of the articles normally the assembly of states was but the registrar of the foregone conclusions in troublous times and the times were often troublous, the faction that was in power would hold a parliament, and the other faction would prudently abstain from attendance. When, in 1560, an unusually free and important parliament was held for the reformation of religion, an elementary question concerning the right of the minor barons to sit and vote was still debatable. And for many years afterwards, those who desire to see the true contribution of Scotland to the history of representative institutions will look not to the blighted and stunted conclave of the three estates, with its titular bishops and abbots commendatory, but to the fresh and vigorous assembly of the Presbyterian Church. Steady taxation, in all that implies, had been out of the question. The Scots were ready to fight for their king, unless they happened to be fighting against him, but they would not provide him with a revenue adequate for the maintenance of public order. He was expected to live of his own, in medieval fashion, and his own was not enough to raise him high above his barons. Moreover, Douglases and Hamiltons and others, hereditary sheriffs and possessors of regalities, were slow to forget that these crowned stewards of Scotland were no better than themselves. What had come with lass might go with alas, and was in no way mysterious. We shall see Queen Mary, widow of a king of France, giving her hand first to a Lennox steward, Whose mother is a douglas and then to a hepburn while the heir presumptive to the throne is the head of the hamiltons we shall see queen elizabeth having trouble with northern earls the percys and Nevilles, who set up an altar which she had cast down and belike would have cast down an altar which she had set up but their power to disturb england was as nothing to the power of disturbing scotland which was exercised by those near neighbors and like-minded fellows of theirs who joined the bellicose congregation of Jesus Christ. And even in the briefest sketch, we must not omit to notice that, as beyond England lay Scotland, so beyond the historic Scotland lay the unhistoric land of the savages. The very means that had been taken by Scottish kings to make Scotsmen of these red shanks, and to bring these savages within the pale of history, had raised up new feudatories of almost royal rank, and of more than baronial turbulence the king would have to reckon not only with an albany an angus and an aaron but also with an argyll and with a Huntley. when we see these things we think of the dark age of charles the simple and rolf the pirate neither valorous feats of arms which overtaxed a people's strength nor a superabundance of earls and barons should conceal from us the nakedness of the land it is more than probable that in the middle of the sixteenth century the whole of the Scottish nation, including untamable Highlanders, was not too large to be commodiously housed in the Glasgow of to day. Life was short and death was violent. It is true that many hopeful signs of the increasing prosperity and enlightenment are visible in the days of James the Fourth, fourteen eighty eight to fifteen thirteen. But those days ended at Flodden. The flowers of the forest were once more mown down. The hand went back upon the dial towards poverty and barbarity. An aptitude for letters we may see. Of a brief springtime of song, Scotland may fairly boast, for as yet no icy wind was blowing from Geneva. Universities we may see. More universities, indeed, than the country could well support. By a memorable, if futile, act of Parliament james the fourth attempted to drive the sons of the gentry into the grammar schools but an all-pervading lack of wealth and of the habits that make for wealth was an impediment to every good endeavour the printing press had been in no hurry to reach england fourteen seventy-seven, but thirty years more elapsed before it entered scotland an aptitude for jurisprudence we might infer from subsequent history but it is matter of inference of lawyers who were not ecclesiastics, of temporal lawyers, comparable to the professionally learned justices and sergeants of England, we can hardly read a word. When at length James V founded the College of Justice (1532), half the seats in it, and indeed one more, were allotted to the clergy, and in later days foreign science was imported from the continental universities to supply the deficiencies of an undeveloped system. Scotland had been no place for lawyers, and the temporal law that might be had there, though it came of an excellent stock, had for the more part been of the bookless kind, and, as with jurisprudence, so with statesmanship. The Scottish statement who was not a bishop was a man of a new kind when Lethington began his correspondence with Cecil. For, even if we employ a medieval standard, we can hardly attribute statescraft or policy to the Albany's and Angus's and Aaron's. In this poor and sparsely peopled country, the church was wealthy, the clergy were numerous, late and lazy. The names of dumb dogs and idle bellies, which the new preachers fixed upon them, had not been unearned. Nowhere else was there a seed-plot better prepared for revolutionary ideas of a religious sort. Nowhere else would an intelligible Bible be a newer book, or a sermon Kindle Stranger Fires nowhere else would the pious champions of the catholic faith be compelled to say so much that was evil of those who should have been their pastors abuses which had been superficial and sporadic in england were widely spread and deeply rooted in the northern kingdom in particular the commendation of ecclesiastical benefices to laymen to babies had become a matter of course the lord james stuart the king's base-born son who at the critical moment is a prior of St. Andrew's and sits in Parliament as a member of the spiritual estate, is a typical figure. The corselet had clattered beneath the archbishop's cassock, and, when bishops and abbots lie among the dead on Flodden Field, they have done no less, but no more, than their duty. We say that the Scottish Church was rich, and so it nominally was, for the Kirklands were broad, but when the Protestant ministers, much to their own disappointment, had to be content with a very small fraction of the old ecclesiastical revenues, they had probably secured a larger share, than had for a long time past been devoted to any purpose more spiritual than the sustenation of royal, episcopal, and baronial families. We exclaim against the greedy nobles whose lust for the Kirklands is one of the operative forces in the history of the Scottish Reformation. They might have said that they were only rearranging on a reasonable and modern basis what had long been for practical purposes the property of their class. Their doings send back our thoughts to far-off Carolingian days, when the benefice became the hereditary fife. To the king it was, no doubt, convenient that the power of those nobles who would leave heirs should be balanced by the power of other nobles, called prelates, whose children would not be legitimate but such a system could not be stable and might at any time provoke an overwhelming outcry for its destruction if ever one bold man raised his voice against it men who are not themselves very moral can feel genuine indignation when they detect immorality among those who though no worse than themselves pretend to superior holiness prelates and even primates of scotland who were bastards and the begetters of bastards were the principal forerunners and coadjutors of john knox and unfortunately they were debarred by professional rules from pleading that they or the best among them were in truth the respectable husbands of virtuous wives Lollardy, too there had been and in some corners of the land it had never been thoroughly extirpated. although there had been a little burning but far from enough to accustom the scots to the sight of a heretic tortured by the flames Then the German leaven began to work, and, from 1528 onwards, a few Lutherans were burnt. The proto-martyr was Patrick Hamilton, the young and well-born abbot of fame. Like many another Scottish youth, he had been at the University of Paris. Afterwards he had made a pilgrimage, if not to Wittenberg, at all events to Marburg. It is characteristic of time and place that historians have to consider whether a feud between Douglasses and Hamilton's counts for nothing in his martyrdom. The reek of Patrick Hamilton, we are told, infected many, and we can well believe it. The College of St. Leonard was tainted with humanism and new theology. Young men fled from Scotland and made fame elsewhere. Such were Alexander Ales, who as Alessius became the friend of Melanchthon and John McAlpine, who, as Maccabeus, professed divinity at Copenhagen. Such also was George Buchanan, the humanist and the Calvinist, the tutor and the Collimator of Queen Mary. And we see the Weddenburns, who are teaching Scotsmen to sing ballads of a novel kind, good and godly ballads, but such as priests are loth to hear. And we see Sir David Lindsay, the herald, the poet, the king's friend, scourging the lives and sometimes the beliefs of the clergy, with verses which rich and poor will know by heart. In short, there was combustible material lying about in large quantities, and sparks were flying. But the day of revolt was long delayed. What held in check the rebellious and even the reforming forces was the best of Scottish traditions, the undying distrust of an England which claimed an overlordship and, in days of Henry VIII, no wholesomer tradition could there be. His father had schemed for amity by ways of matrimonial alliance, and Margaret Tudor had become the wife and mother of Scottish kings. It was plain that in the age of great monarchies, England would be feeble so long as she had a hostile Scotland behind her. But the Tudor would not see that he could not annex Scotland, or that a merely annexed Scotland would still be the old enemy just as in the days of the great schism of england had acknowledged one in scotland the other of the rival popes so in the new days of a greater schism james the became the better catholic because his bullying uncle had broken with rome as was natural for a king of scots he leant upon the support of the clergy and thereby he offended his barons they failed him in his hour of need after the shameful rout at solway moss he turned his face to the wall and died, a worn out, desperate man, at the age of thirty years, December fourteenth, fifteen forty two. His wife, Mary of Lorraine, the sister of those Guises who were to be all powerful in France, had just borne him a daughter. She was the ill fated Mary Stuart, December eighth, fifteen forty two. Once more, a baby was to be crowned in Scotland. Next to her, in hereditary succession, stood a remote cousin, the head of the House of Hamilton, James Earl of Arran, the chattelheret of after-times. But his right depended on the validity of a divorce, which some might call in question, and Matthew Stuart, Earl of Lennox, had pretensions. At the head of the Scottish clergy stood the able, though dissolute Archbishop of St. Andrews, Cardinal David Betton. For a moment it seemed as if a reformed religion or some northern version of Henricanism, was to have its chance. The nobles chose Aaron for regent. Many of them envied the clergy. Many were in Henry's pay. Annan, for a while, inclined towards England. He kept heretical chaplains, a parliament, in spite of the clerical protest, declared that the Bible might be read in the vulgar tongue. Batten had been imprisoned. A charge of falsifying the late king's will had been brought against him. Henry's opportunity had come. The little queen was to be wedded to Edward Tudor. But Henry was the worst of the Unionists. He bribed, but he also blustered, and let all men see that Scotland must be his by foul means if not by fair. A treaty was signed, July 1, 1543, but within six months, December 11th, it was repudiated by the Scots. Meanwhile, the feeble Aaron, under pressure of an interdict, had reconciled himself with Eton, and had abjured his heresies. The old league with France was re-established. Henry then sent fleet and army. Edinburgh was burnt, May 1544. The lowlands were ravaged with pitiless ferocity. The Scottish resistance was feeble. There were many traitors. The powerful Douglases played a double part, lennox was for the english and was rewarded with the hand of henry's niece margaret douglas but scotland could not be annexed the precious child could not be captured and henry could not yet procure the murder of the cardinal patriotism and catholicism were now all one not but that there were protestants one george wishart who had been in switzerland and at cambridge was preaching the gospel and some but this is no better than a guess would identify him with a wishart who was plotting betton's murder he had powerful protectors and among his disciples was a man of middle age born in 1505 who as yet had done nothing memorable he was priest notary private tutor his name was john knox wishart was arrested tried and burnt for heresy march 2nd 1546 thereupon a band of assassins burst into the castle of st andrews and slew betton May twenty ninth, fifteen forty six. The leaders were well born men, Leslie's, Kirkaldys, Melvilles. Their motives were various. Ancient feuds and hopes of English gold were mingled with hatred for a bloody butcher of the saints of God. They held the castle in the town. The ruffinly and godly flocked in. There was a strange mixture of debauchery and gospel in Saint Andrews of those days. John Knox appeared there and was called to preach the congregation. Reluctantly, so he says, he accepted the call. The regent had laid siege, but had failed. At length came French ships with requisite artillery. The besieged capitulated, July 1547. They were to be taken to France, and there liberated. John Knox was shipped off with the rest, and was kept in the galleys for nineteen months to meditate on faith that justifies. Meanwhile, Henry of England had died, January twenty-eighth, fifteen forty-seven, but the Protector Somerset was bent on marrying his boy king to the girl queen. He had excellent projects in his head. He could speak of a time when England and Scotland would be absorbed and forgotten in Great Britain, but the French also were busy around Mary Stuart. So he led an army northwards and fought the Battle of Pinkie, September tenth, fifteen forty-seven. No more decisive defeat could have been inflicted on the Scottish host and the Britannic idea. Other events called Somerset home. The Scots could always be crushed in the field, but Scotland could not be annexed. Then came help from the good friend France, in the shape of French, German, and Italian troops. The English employed Germans and Spaniards. A parliament decided to accept a French proposal in July 1548. The Queen of Scots should marry not the English king, but young Francis the Dauphin, and meantime should be placed out of harm's way. She was shipped off at Numberton, and landed in Brittany, August fifteenth, 1548, to pass a happy girlhood in a lettered and luxurious court. The war was prosecuted with a bloodthirst new in the savage annals of the Borders. It was a war fought by mercenary Almonds when peace was signed in fifteen fifty england had gained nothing and upon the surface though only upon the surface scotland was as catholic as ever it had been grateful to france bitterly resentful against heretical england during the struggle mary of lorraine had borne herself bravely she appeared as the guiding spirit of a national resistance she or her advising kinsfolk were soon to make though in less brutal sort the mistake that henry the had made and this time it was to be irretrievable. During a visit to France, September 1550 to October 1551, she schemed with her brothers and the French king. She was to take Aaron's place as regent. He had been compensated with the duchy, no empty title, of Chatelherault, and his eldest son, who now becomes the Aaron of our story, was to command the French king's Scots guard. The arrangement was not perfected until 1554, for the second person in the kingdom was loth to relax his hold on a land of which he might soon be king. But the French influence was strong, and he yielded. Mary of Lorraine was no bad ruler for Scotland, but still the Scots could not help seeing that she was ruling in the interest of a foreign power. Moreover, there had been a change in the religious environment. Mary Tudor had become Queen of England, July 6, 1553 john knox who after his sojourn in the french galleys had been one of king edward's select preachers and had narrowly escaped the bishopric of rochester was fleeing to geneva and thence he went to frankfort there to quarrel with his fellow exile, dr cox over the book of common prayer in scotland catholicism had been closely allied with patriotism but when england became catholic protestant preachers found refuge in scotland The King of France was cherishing the intrigues of English heretics against the Spanish Queen. Mary of Lorraine was no fanatic, and her policy was incompatible with stem repression. She was trying to make Scotland more securely French. The task was delicate, and she needed the support of nobles, who had little love for the clergy. A few high offices were given to Frenchmen. A few French soldiers were kept in the fortresses. They were few but enough to scatter a whole hosts of undrilled scots an attempt to impose a tax for the support of troops was resisted and the baron showed a strange reluctance to fight the english at length the time came for the queen's marriage april twenty fourth fifteen fifty eight the scottish statesmen had laboriously drawn a treaty which should guard the independence of their realm and the rights of the house of hamilton this was signed but a few days earlier mary stuart had set her hand to other documents which purported to convey scotland for good and all to the king of france we may find excuses for the girl but if treason can be committed by a sovereign she was a traitor she had treated scotland as chattel the act was secret but the scots guessed much and were uneasy in the meantime calvinism for it was calvinism now was spreading after the quarrels at frankfort knox had gone back to geneva and had sat at the master's feet in fifteen fifty five he returned to scotland no mere preacher but an organizer also he went through the country and churches of the new order sprang into being where he went powerful nobles began to listen such as lord Loam, who was soon to be earl of argyll and the queen's bastard brother the lord james stuart who was to be earl of moray and regent And politicians listened also, such as William Maitland, the young laird of Lethington. Knox was summoned before an ecclesiastical court, May fifteenth, 1556, but apparently at the last moment the hearts of the clergy failed them, and the prosecution was abandoned. It was evident that he had powerful supporters, especially the Earl of Glencam. Moreover, the natural leader of the clergy, John Hamilton, the primate of Scotland, was a bastard brother of chatelherault and, as a Hamilton, looked with suspicion on the French policy of Mary of Lorraine, so that the chiefs of church and state were not omitted. However, Knox had no mind for martyrdom, and so, after sending to the regent an admonitory letter, which she cast aside with scornful words, he again departed for Geneva, July 1556. Then the bishops summoned him once more, But only his effigy could be burnt. The preaching went on. In the last days of fifteen fifty seven, the first covenant was signed. The Congregation of Jesus Christ, of which Argyle, Glencairn, and other great men were members, stood out in undisguised hostility to that Congregation of Satan which styled itself the Catholic Church. They demanded that King Edward's Prayer Book, which was good enough for them if not for their absent inspirer, should be read in all the churches. The regent was perplexed. The French marriage had not yet been secured, but she did not prevent the prelates from burning one Walter Milne, who was over eighty years of age, April fifteen fifty eight. He was the last of the Protestant martyrs. They had not been numerous, even when judged by the modest English standard. Fanaticism was not among the many faults of the Scottish prelates, but for this reason his cruel death made the deeper mark. On St. Giles' Day, September 1st, in 1558, that saint's statue was being carried through the town of Edinburgh, of which he was the patron. Under the eyes of the regent, the priests were rabbled, and the idol was smashed in pieces. It was plain that the next year would be stormy, and at this crisis the face of England was once more changed. A few weeks later, Henry Percy, brother of the Earl of Northumberland, was talking with the Duke of chateau God said the englishman had sent you a true and christian religion we are on the point of receiving the same boon why should you and we be enemies we who are hardly out of our servitude to spain you who are being bought into servitude by france the liberties of scotland are in jeopardy and the rights of the hamiltons might we not unite in the maintenance of god's word and national independence this is the ideal which springs to light in the last months of 1568 deliverance from the toils of foreign potentates amity between two sister nations union in a pure religion the duke himself was a waverer his duchy lay in france he is the antoine de bourbon of scottish history but his son the earl of Arran, had lately installed a protestant preacher at chateau herald and was in correspondence with calvin Percy reported this interview to an English lady who had once been offered to the duke as a bride for Aaron and had just become queen elizabeth End of section 58